Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is Exodus, week number four, Exodus chapter three continued. We're going to continue our study in Exodus this week. And last week we ended with Moses on his way to the backside, it says, or the far side of the wilderness of Midian. And I made a case for you that the mountain where Moses would encounter the burning bush was not on Mount, uh, at, at the Mount Sinai we're familiar with on the Sinai Peninsula, but rather um, on the Arabian Peninsula. And this is because Midian is on the Arabian Peninsula. At this point, the mountain where Moses will first encounter the great God of his fathers, this mountain up to now being called Mount Horeb, right, will be the same place Moses was instructed to bring the Hebrew people when they're released from their bondage in Egypt. Okay? Now, am I saying that the traditional location of Mount Sinai near the tip of the Sinai Peninsula is not correct? Yes, that's what I'm saying. All right, We need to grasp that Mount Sinai's location is a Christian tradition, not a Jewish one. All right, It was not until the time of Constantine in the 4th century AD that his mother, Helena, had a vision. And then in this supposed vision, that it was where she decided that this current location for Mount Sinai was the correct one. Until that time, that place had never held any religious significance. Okay. Further, no type of shrine was even built on that place until the 6th century AD when the first section of St. Catherine's Monastery was completed there. And due to the fairly recent work of archaeologists like uh, Bob Cornicky and Ron Wyatt and others, this subject has taken on new life. And in their entirely independent investigations, they can find no other solution for the true location of the mountain of God than in an area east of the Gulf of Aqaba. Now, I say new life because this subject goes back a long way. Right? Uh, in 1893, in the Imperial and Asiatic Quarterly Review, the most highly regarded archaeological journal for its time, Professor Sacy and his colleagues concluded that to look in the Sinai Peninsula for the mountain of God was simply wrong-minded. Okay? That the only evidence, both biblically and extra-biblically, was that it had to be located somewhere on the western end of the Arabian Peninsula. And even earlier mention, although outside the Bible, of the location of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb was from Josephus, okay, the Hebrew Roman historian in, in his work, Antiquities. Josephus says that the location was towards Arabia and actually named the region Arabia, Arabia Petraea. Okay. Now, without doubt, the earliest name of this mountain, the earliest name that it went by, was Mount Horeb. And we don't find it called 
Mount Sinai until after the Jews returned from Babylon. Okay, Coincidentally, but certainly not enough to call it absolute proof, one of the Assyrian Babylonian gods that the Jews encountered just happened to be named Sin, S-I-N. Right? And many scholars believe that is how both the mountain and the desert, Sinai, Sinai, got its name. Sin was the moon god. All right. So the belief is that that region, Sinai, right, Sinai, right, was named for this moon god. All right. That the Jews were so familiar with. The Jews even began to incorporate many Babylonian names and traditions into their own culture after their 70-year stay in Babylon. However, what is also interesting is that it was the Arabian culture characterized by its Sabaean religion that worshipped the moon god at the top of its god hierarchy. So it's not hard to see how all of this could have kind of been mixed up all right, and integrated and absorbed and incorporated over the centuries into Jewish tradition and then borrowed and changed into Christian tradition. I'm convinced at the least that the real Mount Sinai isn't, is not the current one. And therefore, I won't even take people there on tours anymore. All right. Um, in any case, we'll talk about this subject a little more as we get further into Exodus. Not because it has any major theological impact, but because it's just interesting. So let's reread part of Exodus chapter 3 to kind of refresh our memories just where we were. I'm going to read uh, Exodus 3, verses 1 through 12. Exodus 3, verses 1 through 12. Now Moses was tending the sheep of Yitro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Leading the flock to the far side of the desert, he came to the mountain of God, to Horeb. The angel of Adonai appeared to him in a fire blazing from the middle of a bush, and he looked and saw that although the bush was flaming with fire, yet the bush was not being burned up. Moshe said, I'm going to go over and see this amazing sight and find out why the bush isn't being burned up. When Adonai saw that he had gone over to see, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, he answered, here I am. He said, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off your feet because the place where you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, he continued, the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov. Moses covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. And Adonai said, I've seen how my people are being oppressed in Egypt, heard their cry for release from their slave masters because I know their pain. I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians to bring them up out of that country to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanite, the Hitti, the Amorite, Perizzi, Hivai, and Yavusi. Yes, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I've seen how terribly the Egyptians oppress them. Therefore now come, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you can lead my people, the descendants of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? He replied, I will surely be with you. Your sign that I have sent you will be that when you have led the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So Moses led his father-in-law's sheep 
to new pasture land. And suddenly Moses sees this angel of the Lord appearing as a burning bush on one of those mountains. But what really attracted Moses to this fire was that it was burning without consuming the bush. Now back in Genesis, we tackled this matter of just what the angel of the Lord meant. But we'll just very quickly review it. The statement, angel of the Lord, is composed of two Hebrew words. Malach is the first word and it simply means messenger. In Hebrew, mem, uh, lamed, uh, aleph, kaf, sofit, it could be any kind of messenger. All right, Human or otherwise, and it could denote anything from telling your child as a messenger all right, to run next door and ask your neighbor for some milk all the way up to a heavenly messenger, all right, an angel. But when it is used, when the term malak is used to indicate a heavenly message, a messenger, there is a second word added to malak, and it is usually either Adonai or Yehovah. Okay? There is a world of difference between these two words, Adonai and Yehovah. Adonai means Lord or master. It's a rather generic term. Okay? It, it is only within the context of its use that one can even determine whether the Bible is referring to a heavenly Lord or simply an earthly authority figure that's being shown respect. It was customary and it was complimentary in those days. Sometimes just simply flattering to call someone Lord or Master. Adonai. Okay. But using the Hebrew word Yehovah is a whole nother matter. Okay. Yehovah or Yahweh, depending on which Hebrew scholar you believe is correct as to this name's pronunciation, is the completely unique word that God says is his personal name. In Hebrew, yud Hey vav Hey. Now the original Hebrew of this verse, typically translated as angel of the Lord, is actually in Hebrew, Malach Yehovah. Angel of Yehovah. That's what's in the original. When we see the term angel of the Lord, it can mean, and it often does mean, just angel. You know, a heavenly angel as we typically think of it. But when we see angel of Yahweh, Yehovah, okay, it seems to mean an actual manifestation of God himself. Okay. This was not a run-of-the-mill angel in this burning bush, okay, bringing a message from God. It was God himself that was about to speak to Moses. Of this, there is no scriptural doubt. Okay. So what we need to take of this is that just like it is for us today, sometimes there's no word, there's no phrase to adequately describe an attribute or a manifestation of the Father. God could have just spoken to Moses with no visible aspect 
to this communication at all. But usually God does do something visual because of our rational senses, all of them. Okay, Sight is probably the most powerful all right, in impacting upon us. Now, I think I can say with some confidence that Moses was pretty unprepared for what was about to happen. Okay, A voice comes out of the bush that calls his name. Typically, one would think that Moses' fight or flight reflex would have kicked in right about then. Feet don't fail me now, huh? Right. Moses didn't do either one. He just fell up to the ground and laid there like a slug. Okay. He was just scared out of his wits. God instructs him to remove his sandals because it says he's on holy ground. Why is the ground holy? Because God's there. Because God's there, it's holy. Now, we'll see this fleshed out a little more as God begins to instruct many chapters and a couple books later in the building of the wilderness tabernacle. The removing of one's sandals was then and remains a standard Middle Eastern sign of respect when entering the presence of a king or a god. However, the Lord didn't say since you're in the presence of God you have to remove your sandals. Rather, the reason is that the ground, the dirt, surrounding that bush had taken on a holy condition. As we'll find out in later parts of the Torah, holiness was something that could be transmitted from person to person or person to object or object to object. I know this sounds pretty odd. Right? This is because the biblical definition of holiness and its qualities is something that modern Christianity tends to shy away from because it's pretty dicey to deal with. Right? But from a biblical principle aspect, at least part of the matter with the removal of the sandals was that, as the Lord says, the very dirt Moses was standing on was holy because God was near. Okay, How come the dirt was holy? Because the holiness was transmitted to it from a holy God. Okay, It was physically unavoidable. Okay? It would have been tragic had the holiness of the dirt surrounding the burning bush been transferred to Moses' sandals. And then wherever he walked, those sandals could possibly have transmitted holiness to whatever it is they touched. Those of you that have been studying numbers know that what I'm telling you is not tradition and it's not allegory. This is precisely what the Bible says. Okay. We can't see it in this account here in Exodus, but this whole incident is one that is quite dangerous right? because it involves God's holiness. And now, God introduces himself to Moses and he explains that he is the God of Moses' fathers, the patriarchs. Why is this important? Because it instantly connects what is happening here with the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, the covenant of Moses' fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abba says that he sees the terrible condition 
of the people down in Egypt, the people that he has set apart for himself, the Israelites. And in verse 8, God says, I have come down to rescue Israel from the hand of Egypt. I have come down does not mean God just changed location. Okay, Rather, it's an everyday Hebrew idiom that indicates somebody, in this case God, is intervening all right, in a human affair. Just as we saw last week in the Hebrew word zakar, translated remember, which inherently includes involvement in it. God next says that he's going to do what he promised to do so long ago. I shall surely bring you back up again from the place that you've sojourned to a land I've given you. And that place he's prepared for them is Canaan. A good land with plenty of room for them. A land flowing with milk and honey. We're going to hear this phrase, flowing with milk and honey, many times in the scriptures. And it has nothing in the world to do with milk or honey. Okay, It's simply another of the scores of Hebrew idioms that we find in the word. And this one indicates just great fruitfulness and fertility and blessing. Now, of course, this land, Canaan, is already occupied with many peoples. Okay? Primarily the Canaanites. Right? That is, the descendants of Canaan, son of Ham, grandson of Noah. Okay? This was a cursed line of people. Verse 8 also mentions four other people groups who were in the land of Canaan. The Hittites, at one time, well before the Assyrian Empire, formed a substantial empire of their own. Starting at about the time of Moses, they occupied an area that encompassed modern-day Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon. Okay? They also had influence in other areas, including Canaan. And they were a very advanced civilization. And, and here we see mention of them in the Bible with many of them living in Canaan. Now, interestingly, it wasn't very long ago at all that scientists and scholars regarded the biblical mention of Hittites as just another of the many so-called mythical peoples all right, enumerated throughout the Old Testament. Imagine their surprise all right, when recent archaeological digs confirmed that this civilization not only existed, it was a heretofore unknown dominant regional power, and now museums are simply flooded with confirmed Hittite artifacts. It's believed that the Amorites were of Mesopotamian origin. In fact, it's pretty well agreed among Bible anthropologists that Abraham was probably an Amorite. Right? They dominated the area of modern-day Iraq. Right? And they were very aggressive in pursuit of power and territory. The great conqueror Hammurabi was an Amorite. Okay. Their heyday was before that of the Hittites, but their culture survived for centuries after they peaked. Now, it's been concluded that the Perizzites were not really a tribe, but rather it was just a name for a group of peoples and tribes that populated the hill country of Canaan. So it's thought that the Perizzites was kind of a, genetic, a generic term that simply meant hill dwellers. Right? And, and therefore it indicated more of a location than any kind of tribal affiliation. It's like referring to people as 
Floridians or Californians or New Yorkers. Okay. Now, very little is known about the Hivites. However, we do know that the people who occupied and ruled that ancient city of Shechem, right, at least when Jacob lived there for a time, were Hivites. Right? And it appears that they were concentrated in the northern part of Canaan, though some of their tribe likely lived in other parts of Canaan as well. They're, they're even thought to possibly be the ancestors of the Huns. Now the Jebusites were the people who occupied and probably even originally built the city that would eventually be called Jerusalem. Well, God makes it very clear to Moses that he has not been asleep at the switch. Okay. He has seen, he has heard, and he has known of his people's plight. You know, we should never assume that what we perceive as a long period of God's silence in our lives means that he has forgotten his promises to us, or that he isn't aware of us, or he's lost interest in us. For as daunting as it can be, it seems that extended periods of heavenly silence are invariably a major ingredient of God's preparation process, his preparation of us okay, for, for whatever his divine purposes for us might be, and it will include periods of divine silence. And now begins this incredible dialogue between Moses and God. I don't think there's ever been one like it before, and there's never been one like it since. Okay? It's no wonder that the Jewish people venerate Moses. They hold him in such high esteem. Church, you know, it is really sad that we don't too. Because as we progress through the Torah, we're going to see just how highly God thought of Moses. After God makes it clear who he is and his great compassion for his people and his intention to do something about their condition, in verse 10, he calls Moses to be his instrument of deliverance. And the way this call occurs is really a pattern for the way God will commission all of his prophets. Not just in biblical times, but for all time. Okay? And it's almost opposite of the way a human would expect such a thing to happen. Okay? First and foremost, it is that it is God who approaches the one he has chosen to be his prophet. Okay? It is God that initiates the contact. Sometimes it's in a vision, could be in a dream. In this case, with Moses, it's a direct confrontation. The flame in the bush is about the closest thing we're going to see in the Bible that even approaches face-to-face -face conversation with God. Now, second, the one chosen as a prophet is always either reluctant or outright refuses the call at first. Jonah is often called the reluctant prophet. In point of fact, all the prophets were reluctant. Right. Being reluctant seems to almost be a precondition to being chosen a prophet of God. I mean, are you anxious and determined you're going to be a prophet for God? Then from everything I've read in the Bible, you're not a candidate. Okay. Third, we see that the prophet candidate, male or female, 
is sent back to society or to wherever God sends them without concern for the opposition he's going to receive undeterred by the skeptical nature of the many are going to, who are going to scoff at him, ready to tell men of great power and authority things that, well, shall we say, will disturb them. Okay? It may well be that the prophet will never in his lifetime achieve even a modest amount of respect from his former friends or, or his family. Nor might he ever see come to pass what it is he's been told by God to prophesy. This is a tough job. But if we look at this from a little bit different perspective, we also can see what it, what it is that God is looking for in the character of the person he chooses to be his prophet. Utmost, God wants someone who doesn't consider himself worthy to be a prophet of God. Someone who doesn't think, oh, pick me, pick me, I got what it takes. Okay, No personal ambition can be present. Because the person chosen must understand better than most that it, of himself, it's going to be utterly impossible to carry out the task that's been given to him. That what's going to come next, he's not going to know. And that there's going to be no way for him to prepare for it. That if God doesn't do it all, it's simply not going to happen. So we see God's patience with Moses. Because God well understands that the very attributes of the man he will use to bring his people out of Egypt runs completely counter to what this man thinks he's capable of doing. Okay, Folks, let me say it again. If you've ever wanted to be a prophet of God, you're probably not a candidate. Okay? If you think you might make a good product, a prophet, you're probably disqualified. Okay? If any man's ambition is to gain personal benefit from speaking for God, that man is not going to be chosen. Okay? I mean, I I tell you this not just so we can all go look in the mirror. All right, and make some honest judgments about ourselves concerning this, but also that we might closely look at the men and women who profess to speak for God. Do they have the attributes that God seeks for his spokespersons? Those characteristics so clearly laid out in the word? Or is it that they have attributes that appeal to themselves or worse, to a worldly human nature? Do they have a desire to be popular and successful? Or do they have a desire to tell you the truth that God has given them to tell no matter the cost? Don't ever let anybody tell you you have no right to make such a determination. It's our duty all right, to our families and, and us to carefully examine those who profess to speak for God. Otherwise, we will have no idea who it is we're hearing from. God or man, maybe worse. Okay. After Moses displays this first primary quality that God looks for in a prophet by saying, who am I that should go to the Pharaoh? God tells Moses that he will be present with him in the task just assigned. And then God says something we need to remember 
for some future chapters in Exodus. He says, as a sign of his direct hand in bringing the people out of Egypt, Moses is to lead people to this mountain where they will all serve God. What mountain is this mountain? The exact same one on which Moses is now encountering God in the burning bush. And where is this mountain? Where Moses drove his sheep to behind the desert of Midian. Let's read a little bit more of Exodus. Let's going to read from 13 on to the end. Exodus 13 on to the end. Moses said to God, look, when I appear before the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What am I to tell them? And God said to Moses, Eye, Asher, Eye, and added, here's what to say to the people of Israel. Eye has sent me to you. God said further to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, yud heh vav heh the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered generation after generation. Go, gather the leaders of Israel together and say to them, Adonai, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov has appeared to me and said, I have been paying close attention to you and have seen what is being done to you in Egypt. And I have said that I will lead you up out of the misery of Egypt into the land of, Can of the Canaanite, the Hitti, the Amori, the Perizzi, the Hivi, and the Yavusi, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will heed what you say. Then you will come, you and the leaders of Israel, before the king of Egypt, and you will tell him, Adonai, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please... Let us go three days' journey into the desert so that we can sacrifice to Adonai our God. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you leave unless he's forced to do so. But I will reach out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will do there. And after that, he will let you go. Moreover, I will make the Egyptians so well disposed toward this people that when you go, you won't go empty-handed. Rather, all the women will ask their neighbors and house guests for silver and gold jewelry and clothing with which you will dress your own sons and daughters. In this way, you will plunder the Egyptians. Now, even though God reassures Moses that he will be with him, Moses now says in verse 13 that the people will want to know God's name. Obviously, Moses does not know the name of God. I mean, does anyone besides me find this a curious question at this point? I mean, what's the big deal about knowing God's name that Moses is just so sure the Israelites are going to demand? I mean, what's wrong with just saying, well, it's the God of our fathers that sent me. I mean, has Moses forgotten that all of his forefathers called God El Shaddai? Okay. The sad reality is that the Israelites had succumbed to nearly four centuries of living amongst the pagan worship practices of the Egyptians. And one of the main tenets of the Hebrew, or rather the Hebrew, the Egyptian religion was that if you knew a particular God's name, 
and they had many gods up here on this chart or just a few of them, you could manipulate that god to do your will by invoking his name. You see, just like in Hebrew, in the Egyptian language, personal names had meanings. So the name of a god denoted that god's characteristics, and that characteristic was directly associated to some specific part of the natural or spiritual world that he or she supposedly had influence or control over. So if one was clever enough to match up the particular matter that was of concern to you with the right God, and then you knew that God's name, you could call out, oh great God, electro God of the television, make the reception come in better. All right, and that God had no choice but to do it. Okay? Well, Moses well knew from his living in Egypt for the first 40 years of his life that this is how it was. And of course, God well knew it. So God obliged and he gave Moses a name. A name that denoted God's characteristics. And that name was Eye Asher Eye. Now let's take a few minutes with this. First off, Understand that God gave Moses what he knew Moses was looking for. A name that indicated God's characteristics, because that's how gods were named. Because this is not the same thing as God's personal, formal name, which he's soon going to tell Moses. Now, Eye Asher Eye is most typically translated, I am that I am or I will be what I will be. Nothing wrong about that. Okay, This has been the source of much mystery that's caused disagreement among very reasonable Bible scholars as to its precise meaning. And I have absolutely no doubt that God gave us that name just for that reason. His name is not to be compared with anything or anyone else. Okay, Some translators make it out to be what I will be, I will be. Others, I am who I am. Still others, I am that which I am. And another intriguing interpretation, I will be there, howsoever I will be there. Okay. I have no trouble with any of these definitions because I think we're attempting to define God's sublime characteristics. Okay, his unique essence. And the only way we have human words developed from human thoughts. And words just can't quite capture it. But it's all we have. I also think that, as is our human propensity, we want to come to an easily digestible consensus of a single characteristic that we can assign God. You know, our desire for a bottom line, black or white, yes or no. Okay. Rather, I believe in this name God is giving us just a glimpse of the nearly impossible to envision reality that he is self-existent, I am that I am, that he is eternal, I will be as I will be, that he is one of a kind, I am that which I am, he is not a being that he should be even remotely compared to man. 
He is always present and he is with us and around us in ways which would be futile for him to even bother to try and explain. All right, isn't a translation that I like. I will be there howsoever I will be there. He was and is and will always be. No Egyptian god had such a name as this. No known pagan god claimed what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was claiming. Now in verse 15, God gives Moses his formal personal name. And what we find out at a later point is that this is the first time God has given out his personal name. And that name is yud Hey vav Hey. Okay. And yud Hey vav Hey says that this, that this name is his name for all generations. Right? In other words, as long as there exists mankind, this is the name God wishes to be known by. Now, a quick explanation. If we turn back the clock and go back to Genesis, we're going to see several places where the name yud heh vav is used long before this time when referring to God. So, if only here at the burning bush does Moses and mankind first receive God's formal eternal name, how is it that that same name is present in the records of events in Genesis that took place hundreds of years earlier? It's because Moses wrote down Genesis and portions of other books of the Torah after the fact. Okay. Moses wrote a history. He didn't write a diary. Okay. And as is normal in human literature, when we look back at a person or an event or a place, we usually refer to it by the most common current name that people would understand. I mean, for instance, today I might refer to my two-year-old granddaughter Hannah by name even when concerning a time when she was still in her mother's womb and she still didn't have a name. Okay? Or if I was going to tell you the history of an area of Southern California that we're all familiar with, I would say that 500 years ago in the Los Angeles area there lived a huge population of Chumash Indians. Now the name Los Angeles is not that old. Okay? And certainly there was no place called Los Angeles 500 years ago. But what better way do I have to refer, refer to a particular area than to call it by the name it's currently known? Okay, That's all that was happening when Moses used God's name earlier in Genesis. It was done in retrospect. You know, in verse 16, God tells Moses to go to a certain group of authority figures in Israel in order that they are informed of what is about to happen. Okay? And notice what these people are called. Elders. Alright? If you refer to your charts from an earlier lesson, you'll see that elders are the people's representative. An elected or appointed class of leadership. Okay? Elders are not part of the hereditary hierarchy that forms the ruling class of prince, chief, and head. I mean, kind of interesting to me that God sent Moses not to the rulers of Israel, but to the common people's representatives. 
Jesus would do exactly the same thing. Okay? He went to the people, not the institutional religious authorities. Okay? And I don't think that when it comes to God wanting to communicate with his people that it's any different now than it was then. I mean, do you? I mean, pastors, teachers, and other church leaders are simply managers necessary to organize. Right? And people God uses to carry out tasks and needed functions. We, they, are not mediators. There is nobody between the Father and you except for Jesus. God gave Moses a short list of things he was to say to the elders of Israel, who were then to pass it on to all those that they represented, the general population of Israel. Moses is to tell them that he has personally seen the God of their forefathers, and it is Y-H-V-H, yud heh vav who sent him. Further, yud heh vav wants the people to know that he knows of their affliction. And he's determined to remedy it by bringing Israel out of Egypt and up to Canaan, a fertile and fruitful place. And God tells Moses that the people will listen to what Moses has to say to them. And then, and here it comes, Moses and those elders are to confront the king of Egypt. But unlike what we typically think, Pharaoh was not at first hit with a demand to release the people of Israel to permanently migrate. No, all that was asked was that Israel be allowed to take a three-day journey into the wilderness so that they could worship God. That's it. Now, of course, implied in all this is that this journey was simply akin to going on a retreat. Okay. But God goes on to say that he knows in advance that Pharaoh is going to deny Israel permission to do this and therefore after Pharaoh refuses this request, God's going to smite Egypt and then only after that will Pharaoh comply. Why all this kabuki dance? Why this need to try for a three-day pass instead of an honorable discharge? Okay. Well, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that God needed to show Israel some things that they were currently blind to. I mean, like all of us, Israel didn't so much want to change. They just wanted their circumstances to be different. They didn't so much mind being in Egypt and being associated with and polluted by Egyptian culture and Egyptian religion. They just didn't like that slavery part. So God began by telling Moses that Israel had to separate itself from Egypt so that he could have them all to himself, that he might show them what proper worship is. I mean, this dividing and separating of God's people from the world is crucial. Right? And the elders needed to see that Pharaoh held a far deeper hold over them than they realized. Okay. The king of Egypt didn't just want their labor. He wanted them mind, body, and spirit. Okay. Pharaoh wants what Satan wants. Pharaoh's refusal to allow them to separate, but for 72 hours, 
that they might worship God is going to show the elders that the only path before them is to permanently separate from Egypt. And this is going to be a very difficult and arduous path for the people and for their leaders. So they're going to have to buy into it wholeheartedly. Remember, what we're talking about here is redemption. Okay, You know, there's probably not one of us in this room who has not been faced with the same reality. If you are one of God's people, then God is going to use whatever means necessary to divide and separate you away from the things of the world, things that aren't good for you. But you know, it's just not our human instinct to follow God and leave everything behind that is not of God. Rather, we always try to keep one foot in the world and the other in God's kingdom, but it just won't work. I'm not sure there's any greater misery experienced than for a child of God who resist, keeps on resisting the Lord's will that we separate ourselves from all that's unholy. I mean, that is one miserable condition to be in. Right? And the grueling part of it all is that it's a process that is never ending for the entire duration of our lives as long as we stay in the faith. I mean, it seems that once we finally sever ties to some worldly thing that we now recognize we're enslaved to, God will show us yet another area in our lives that have to be dealt with in the same manner and on and on and on the process goes all of our days. I mean, Israel would have preferred to keep one foot in Egypt and the other in the promises of God. That, of course, was going to prove to not only be impossible, but deadly. All right? And at the end of chapter 3... God gives Moses a prophecy integrated with a command. Strip Egypt. When God was through punishing Egypt, Israel was to ask, or better demand, of the Egyptian citizens their valuables. And God said Egypt would gladly give Israel anything they wanted just to, just to be rid of them. All right? In reality, Egypt would come to fear the presence of Israel, or really, the presence of Israel's God. Here we have another God-produced irony. The slaves plunder the master. It was the tradition of that time, as it is today in most non-Western societies, that to the victor goes the spoils. But Israel was not the victor. They had nothing to do with overcoming Egypt. God did it all and Israel just benefited from it. Okay. Another God pattern that the church most recognizes as a New Testament principle created in Yeshua yet originally occurred right here. It was that God redeemed us from our servitude to our flesh and to Satan and all we did was benefit from what he had done. Next week, we're going to start chapter 4.